0: All right, welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio, and you've stumbled your way onto the only show on the web dedicated to all things rock and roll. You know, if you don't count the other 3,000 podcasts doing the exact same thing. But I can guarantee that this is the only show this week to feature one of the most omnipresent keyboard players of the rock era. He's been a member of the Allman Brothers Band. He's played Keys on Tour with David Gilmour, John Mayer, Eric Clapton, George Harrison and since 1982, has done thousands of gigs around the world with the Rolling Stones. Of course, I'm talking about the great Chuck Lavelle, who is the subject of an incredible documentary, Chuck Lavell The Tree Man, which aside from dealing with his vast musical career, also talks about his passion for forestry and conservationism. He also hosts the PBS series American Forest with Chuck Lavelle. So tree farming just isn't some side passion project of his. He's the real deal. But as you're about to hear when it comes to Chuck Lavell, in the end, all roads lead back to the music and rock and roll.
1: a well, plan to move west. Take my way, call it's a highway, that's the best. City, mighty mighty pretty You'll see Amarillo Gallup, New Mexico Flagstaff, Arizona Don't forget Renona Came on at bar show when I get all of you Get him to my Time to trip When you take Your California trip
0: guest, a rock and roll sideman, simply doesn't do justice to his 50 plus years in the music business. Starting out as an in-demand keyboard session player, in 1972 he would join the Allman Brothers band providing them with a fresh direction following the death of founding member Dwayne Allman. Although he's worked with everyone from David Gilmour to John Mayer and famously played 12 nights in Japan on what would be George Harrison's last tour, he might be best known for his current role as keyboardist and unofficial musical director for the Rolling Stones. And as if that wasn't enough, he's also a passionate, nationally recognized conservationist and tree farmer, which I want to hear a lot more about later. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Chuck Lavelle. Good morning, Chuck.
2: Good morning, Brother Donald. How are you, sir? A lot better now. <laughs> well, it's great to be with you. I appreciate the invitation.
0: Absolutely, man. And wow, what a lousy year 2020's been, huh?
2: <laughs> it's It's been challenging in a lot of ways, that's for sure.
0: Well, I know the Stones were forced to cancel the No Filter Tour of America. How have you been keeping busy the last 12 months?
2: Well, as you mentioned in your intro, in my other life, uh, I am a tree farmer and uh, work a lot on our land here in Georgia. So it's given me the opportunity to do a lot of things that uh, I've had on the back burner but i've also engaged in some virtual performances and done some remote session work and we're we're staying busy so that's a good thing and fortunately my wife and I have both now had both our vaccines, and uh, we look forward to seeing some family that we haven't seen in quite some time.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good. You had both of them, huh?
2: We have, yeah. We Dude. had the Pfizer. Uh, did, did not have any bad reactions, thank heaven. And uh, and it's good to see the vaccines uh, rolling out more and more, more steadily. You know, the, the news tells us recently that they think there's a possibility that we could get everyone or at least have available vaccines for everyone in the country by May and uh, we'll see where that leads and how it goes.
0: Is there any uh, official unofficial plans to reschedule the tour probably until next year?
2: Well I know the band wants to reschedule and I think it's a matter of keeping a close eye on how things develop at this point. Uh, No predictions yet so uh, stay tuned. All right. Are you originally born and raised in birmingham alabama well born in birmingham but uh my family lived there as well as montgomery for a time but we really settled in tuscaloosa when i was like in the fourth grade so roll tide baby roll tide oh yeah
0: well (laughs) the 60s were a tumultuous time in america no matter where you grew up but alabama must have been an experience uh, i would imagine both good and bad in some ways
2: well yes uh certainly I remember very well the segregation that was going on. I remember seeing the uh, restrooms that said white and colored and the water fountains that said white and colored. And, you know, when I was, I think it must have been the sixth grade, uh, maybe the fifth, uh, integration finally began to happen uh, in the schools. And I remember very well uh, the first African-American young man that uh, came into our school and it was tough, man, I felt so bad for him. He he was uh, chastised a lot, but he was a brave little kid and yeah. uh, I got on very well with him. And, you know, as I began to have somewhat of a musical career, uh, there's a wonderful black college in Tuscaloosa called Stillman yeah. College. And uh, I worked with a band called The Jades there. They were very much like a Four Tops or, or Temptations type group, great harmonies, great dancing. And uh, when I was pretty young, I guess maybe 15, I worked uh, some with those guys. They had a great keyboard player named Freddie and Freddie was kind of in the back playing the keyboards while the other guys were out front and we became friends. And Freddie said, hey, man, if I show you some things on keys and help you out, you could uh, play on a few tunes and let me go up front. So he was a great player. So I accepted that invitation. Sure. And uh, quite frankly, took a lot of heat from a lot of people about, you know, why are you playing with those types and, and sort of thing? Wow. Um, and the other thing I'll say about it is that being a bit of a hippie <laughs> myself, yeah. um, I got chased by some rednecks in pickup trucks uh, because I had long hair and played in bands kind of thing. So. It was a tough time, and uh, God bless my mother's soul. There was not a prejudice bone in her body, and so she taught her children very strongly about equality, and we're all, the three of us in that family, uh, my brother and my sister, Uh, Talk about this often. How grateful we were with her morality and her leadership.
0: Well, that's the whole thing, right there, isn't it? You're not born with hating you. You're taught that. Yeah, exactly,
2: exactly. And and uh, listen, Don, I remember vividly watching the news back in Tuscaloosa with a KKK march down through the downtown area, only to find out that some of my friends' fathers were in that march and. You know, it it was a very strange time.
0: Sure. And yet, you know, you you mentioned rednecks in Keith Richards' book. He talks about how when the Stones first taught America in the South, there was the African-American community who would say, come sit with us, hang out, let's talk music, because the music is what brought so many people together in those days.
2: Absolutely. It's the universal language, as we all know, it helps bring people together. It helps uh, heal wounds and uh, thank heaven for music, man. And, you know, back in those days for me, so much of the indigenous music was rhythm and blues and soul. So you had Wilson Pickett and, of Mm. course, Aretha. And and they were all, uh, many of them were coming to Alabama, as you know, to record in muscle shows. Right that was a great honor to see all of that happen as well as artists like uh, bob seger and and the rolling stones and so many a variety of artists to come to that part of alabama and work
0: do you remember what your first time hearing rhythm and blues was or uh, rock and roll
2: well you know i would point to ray charles and this is not quite well it is soul it is R and B, but it also has the uh country and western flavor and that was that wonderful record modern sounds and country and Western music that he did. uh, I Can't Stop Loving You and all those great songs. And boy, that struck a note with me. And then when I was, I think, 13, my sister had a date to go see Ray Charles at the Coliseum in in Tuscaloosa. And my parents had a, a date of their own that night, and you know they were a little concerned about me just being all by myself. So they suggested that my sister Judy take me, and she was very gracious to do so. Man, oh man, you talk about a life-changing event! Such a powerful band. Of course, Ray was amazing, but had Billy Preston playing Hammond B three at the time. Uh, Fathead Newman on sax, Ray wow. Letts, and I left there just with my jaw on the floor saying, hey, if I could ever, ever be in a band that could move people like that just moved me, uh, that's what I would like to do. Boy, Billy Preston must have been young. He was very young. Uh, Ray gave him a special spot to sing a song and go out front and dance, and um, he was amazing. Uh, got to meet him, of course, later in life. As we know, he was uh, playing with the Stones in his career and with the Beatles and with uh, everybody under the sun. Such a great artist.
0: Had you been playing piano at that time or is that what kind of got you into it?
2: uh i was playing piano yes i my mom played the piano she was not a teacher she was not a professional but she played for family enjoyment we had a little spinet piano in the house and i was the youngest of the three children and oftentimes i would tug on her skirt and ask her to play and i was just fascinated watching her hands go up and down that keyboard listen to the beautiful sounds and uh, she'd get me up on the stool and show me very simple things a triad here and there and simple melodies and Oftentimes, leave me to my own resource. I think it was kind of a form of babysitting, really. But she would say, I've got to do some work over here, but you sit here and play. You, you know, you can practice some of the things I showed you. You can just make something up. It doesn't matter. Just have fun. And thanks, Mom. Sure. <laughs> Another yeah. thing she did, Don, that made such a big impression on me is that she would say things like, Well, Chuck, what would it sound like if there was a big storm outside? And I'd rumble down on the low end keys and then kind of spike some upper end keys to make lightning sounds. And she would say things like, well, what do you think it might sound like if you hit a home run for your baseball team? Or what would it sound like if you were kind of mad at one of your friends? And so at a very young age, five, six years old, music uh, was about emotions, feelings, and colors, and not just notes and chords.
0: She gave you a hell of a gift to turn you on to that side of it.
2: Well, she did indeed, and I am certainly forever grateful for that.
0: Now, you mentioned Muscle Shoals, and I know you did a lot of session work at a young age.
2: Well, of course, I was aware of Muscle Shoals. I did have a contact there, a guy named Marlon Green. Marlon was an engineer there, but Marlon was also uh, a guitar player, songwriter, and singer. He befriended me when I was maybe 15 course there was a plethora of studios up there there was fame studios muscle Shoals sound studios there was wishbone studios Quinby studios mm-hmm. uh this was in particular muscle Shoals sound where the swampers worked that was of course barry beckett on yep. keys and uh, uh, jimmy johnson and and david hood on bass and jimmy on guitar and of course dwayne allman worked there as well roger hawkins such a great drummer uh, and some other players and Marlin would say, well, look, there's a session. It was a small building and it's still there, by the way. It has been renovated, but a small building. So not a lot of places to hang out and marlon would say well chuck if you you know to kind of hang out in the parking lot and uh you'll see the door open at some point to take a break and then you can come in and we can talk and maybe you can meet some folks and if you want to play a little something so that was my intro to it and that led to eventually being asked to play hammond b3 on a record with a guy named freddie north and this was actually at Quinvey Studios, and the uh, engineer-producer was a guy named David Johnson. And the song was called Don't Take Her, She's All I've Got. Friend. don't take her, she's all I've got. A nice little r&b tune and lo and behold it became a hit you know and so that just put a spark in me man you know all of us as you can imagine and as you know back then the main thing was to be on a record if you could be on a record you know
0: being on a popular record i looked it up it hit number 39 on the pop charts and number 10 on the rb charts and what were you 16 17?
2: uh i was uh 15 into 16 yeah i guess i was maybe 16 when it came out and yeah you know to be of course my name wasn't on the record but i knew i was in those grooves man that really was a great encouragement
0: you mentioned dwayne allman for me his work on hey jude by wilson pickett oh my god that's just phenomenal didn't you have a brief encounter with him
2: yes i did i saw greg and dwayne several times when they were the almond joys And uh, they played a place called Fort Brandon Armory in Tuscaloosa. And those of us that were musicians, young musicians, uh, would go every time they would play. They were amazing. You know, we thought, wow, these guys are just really hot, man. They got it. They looked great, they you know, did really wonderful arrangement, Greg's voice, Dwayne's guitar. So I was certainly well aware of them, but I had never really met either of them at the time. And later when I moved to Macon, Georgia and started working with several different artists at Capricorn Records and at the Capricorn Studios, I was invited to play on a session for a little group called Cowboy. And they were actually recording at Muscle Shoals Sound and the producer was Johnny Sandlin, who became a very, very close friend of mine. And Johnny called me up and said, hey, man, you know, come play on a couple of songs. We'll fly you up. And Dwayne had just played on the song, Please Be With Me, which later became a hit for Eric Clapton, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. But it was first on this record by the, the band Cowboy. Scott Boyer and Tommy Talton were the two principal members. So anyway, I enter, uh, having just landed and uh, entered the studio, and Dwayne had just finished playing on Please Be With Me, and his guitar was packed up, and he was leaving and walking out, and I was just walking in, and literally it was passed by each other, and, <laughs> and, and, and hey, man, how you doing? And that right. was it.
0: And then, as everyone knows, he sadly passed away in 1971 from a motorcycle crash, and they initially went out without him. Shortly after that, you came in not as a replacement by any means, but more of an addendum to the band and helped them get in a slightly different direction.
2: Well, yes, uh, but it it was precluded by uh, an invitation to work on Greg's first solo record, which was called Laid Back. And again, this was uh, Johnny Sandlin that was producing or co-producing, and he called me in to play on the record uh which of course i was really grateful to do and this was at a point in time when the band had gone out as a five piece with no replacement i think they did something like 90 shows a lot more than i recall it was done but got that number by someone recently that knows very well and so anyway they had done these 90 odd shows as a five piece and came back they were physically exhausted mentally exhausted and Greg wanted to do something different. He wanted to do his own record. And so uh, we started the project. It sounded great, going really good. I think Greg was happy. And after hours, there would sometimes be these jam sessions where uh, not only the Almonds but some other people would come down and play too. But largely, it was the rest of the Almond Brothers band: Butch Trucks on drums, JMO on drums, uh, Barry Oakley on bass, uh, Dicky on guitar. And we would just, you know, pick a key and go, or we might do an Almond Brothers song, or might do a blues song, or something. And after about two weeks of this, you know, on and off jam session thing, uh, I get a call from Phil Walden saying, well, actually his assistant saying, Phil wants to see you in his office. And I thought, oh God, what have I done wrong now? <laughs> <laughs> And I was only 20 years old, so I was a little intimidated by record sure. company executives. Sure, but, but I went in and lo and behold, there's all the rest of the band and a few pleasantries went down and then the shoe dropped and Phil said, well, listen, the guys feel like this is a really interesting direction for them to have you as a, an instrumental component to the band. Would you be interested in joining? So yes, I would. It didn't take me long to affirm that.
0: And how long after that had Barry Oakley passed? Also, ironically, from uh, injuries
2: from a motorcycle accident. Yeah, man, it was so sad. Uh, Barry, well, first of all, let me just talk about his musicianship. He was one of the most unusual bass players. He, He was more of a melodic style bassist than he was, you know, holding the bottom down. Very, very creative, very clever. And he was also the first guy in the band to really befriend me. You know, he would, Hey, man, you okay? You know, uh, you feeling all right about things? Uh, I love what you're doing. Love what you're doing. He was just very encouraging. And we started out recording the Brothers and Sisters album. And, you know, these jam sessions, as I mentioned, were also a component of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he, he, it's just such a sad thing. Um, we were going to have a session at, at a club, a jam session at a club. And he rode out to the place we were living on his motorcycle with a couple of the roadies and Barry was, uh, he'd been drinking and drugging and I don't know what all he'd been doing, but he, he was definitely high. And he said, Hey man, come on, we're going to have this jam session. We're going to have a rehearsal at the big house. Come on big house is where several of the members live. and I was I had been in the band maybe oh, three months, something like that, four months maybe. So we said sure and he left and I got in the car a, a little bit later to go for the rehearsal. And I get there, and the girls are crying. Uh, there's two roadies bringing Barry, carrying him physically down the steps from the upstairs. Oh my God. And I said, What in the world happened? And, well, he had a motorcycle accident. And he thought he was okay, but now he's out of his head. And, uh, you know, he's unconscious. And I said, Well, I, I had just pulled up in my station wagon. I said, Well, I just pulled up, put him in my car, and, you know, we'll go to the hospital. We rushed to the hospital. Three hours later, he was gone. Oh
0: my God! Was he conscious at all during the drive to the hospital?
2: No, no, no. He oh he was out God. of it. He was uh, he had a severe head injury, and uh, which was the same that happened to Dwayne. Uh, ironically, almost a year to the date uh, apart.
0: Yeah, that's uh, wow. That's a real tragedy. And I think he's on the Brothers and Sisters album. He's only on the first and second track.
2: That- that that's right. Wasted and, words and the uh, rambling man. Right, and we actually did do. I can't remember exactly. I think it might have been three live performances uh, with Barry still alive and me and the band. And uh, you know, that, I wish I'd had a lot more with Barry, course, but at least, at least I had that.
0: What was the first track you remember recording?
2: I think it was "Wasted Words." Was the first one. Yeah.
3: Tell me, tell me, friend, just exactly where I've been. Is that so much? To- afraid Watch it on TV. so soapbox speciality. You know what I'm talking about now. By the way, this song for you, sincerely me.
2: Of course, Dicky had Ramblin' Man, and uh, he was kind of reluctant to even bring that to the band because he felt it was too maybe too country. And uh, but we worked it up, and you know he uh, did that really clever vamp on the end with all the different guitars, which uh, he got the inspiration for that by the way for the ending of Layla and and so he thought what can i do to make this country song not so country yeah and that was the answer so it it was a really clever thing to do and but yeah i I remember a good bit of it uh, especially the song jessica which was a great vehicle for me oh yeah uh the instrumental and um yeah it, it was a golden time man
0: how did that song come about because your piano work especially in that intro bit is so instantly recognizable
2: well the story is that of course, it's uh, written by Dickie Betts. Mm-hmm. He had a little toddler daughter at the time, Jessica. Uh, she was about two years old and he was listening to Django Reinhardt. Oh yeah! And for your listeners that know anything about Django, he was a gypsy guitar player from, I think the thirties, I guess. And uh, he always had this really bouncy rhythm. And so uh, Dickie was listening to that, watching Jessica play and he came out with that acoustic guitar intro if your listeners remember what that intro is and so from there he put a melody to it and brought it to the band you know we all loved it and especially me because i could see wow this is a opportunity for me to stand out on something you know and they then the band was very they wanted that you know they said hey listen this is good for you man we're going to have a nice solo in here for you and Uh, So we worked on the arrangement and we put it together and it was just a fantastic vehicle for me and uh, still stands the test of time, thank God.
0: period. You um, met your future and current, was it 48 years? God bless you. Your wife, Rose Lane. (laughs)
2: Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Well, I had come over uh, realizing we talked about muscle shows and I got a little bit of action there, but I realized very quickly that there were a lot older, more experienced musicians there that were going to get the first calls. And so I said, well, I wonder what else is going on. And I had a contact and that was Paul Hornsby. Paul had played in a precursor to the Allman Brothers called the Hourglass. He and I became friends in Tuscaloosa. And so when he made the trip to Macon, uh, I followed him to see what the heck that was all about. and I uh, saw a, a state-of-the-art studio, had a tour of that, tour of the booking agency, Paragon agency, and then of course, to the offices of the record company. And so the doors open and there's these two beautiful women that you saw right off the bat. Uh, and one was indeed my future and current as you mentioned, a uh, wife, Rose Lane, she was assistant to the vice president. And the other woman who was this beautiful African-American woman named Carolyn Brown, and she was Phil Walden's assistant. And uh, so I, that was very impressive.
0: <laughs> sure. Amazing how these things work out, though, huh? I mean, it's just oh yeah, it's like it's all cosmic somehow.
2: Well, you know, I was I was young and I was penniless at the time. And it took me a few years to, uh, you know, to get that position with the Allman Brothers. Uh, And we had a show uh, New Year's Eve of, I think it was 72 going into 73 and Rose Lane had been involved in putting together what was one of the first ever simulcasts, you know, uh, doing a live feed across the country with several radio stations being hooked up. And she was largely responsible for setting that network up. And so she came to the show and I finally got up the courage to ask her out. And we've been together ever since then. Wow.
0: I'm from the Providence, Rhode Island area. And I remember an older cousin of mine telling me they saw the Allman Brothers. They want to say 75, might've been 76 at the Providence Civic Center telling yep. me they had this uh, politician guy come out before they start before they started. <laughs> It's amazing no. that you guys have played a role in getting a peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia, elected the 39th president.
2: We certainly did. And we were so proud to be involved and proud of President Carter. And for your listeners, if they haven't heard or seen the great documentary called Jimmy Carter, the rock and roll yeah. president, you, you have to see that thing. Yes. It it's really is a wonderful snapshot of the times. But uh, what had happened, just I'll try to be brief about it. But he was governor uh, in Georgia. And we got the word, we were recording Dickie Betts' first uh, solo record called Highway Call. And we got the word that Governor Carter wanted to come to the studio. And we thought, oh God, okay, photo op, you know, that'll be it. And uh, he came in, he was really gracious. He was genuinely interested in what was going on. He stayed for quite some time, maybe two hours or so. He asked great questions about uh, the recording process, great questions about the music business. And uh, it wasn't all that long after that, that we got word that he was gonna run for president and would we be willing to help him out? And we said, sure, yeah, that's great. Are you kidding me? If we get a guy from our home state elected, that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. And somebody that has a real interest in music, which he truly does. And uh, he was, very gracious we've been friends since then you know We've uh, quail hunted together we've spent other times together uh he gave me an endorsement of one of my books that, that i wrote and uh he's actually quail hunted at our place here our land yeah which was a, a great honor he was also very gracious to be in my documentary called the tree man
0: you know it's funny too because today it's common for politicians to use musicians not so much back then, certainly not in a campaigning way.
2: Yeah, de- and definitely not rock and roll, you know. And and one of the funny things, as you know, because you've seen the documentary, but for those that recall those times, uh, Jerry Brown, who was governor uh, of uh, California, decided to run for president. And he got the endorsement of Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles and Jackson Brown. And so, you know, he was parading around those guys, and Carter was parading us around, and well, we he, won. <laughs> that's right. Well, he got
0: more than an endorsement from Linda Rodstad, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> uh,
2: a very intimate endorsement. Yes, yes.
0: The Almond Brothers did split up for a time. What do you think contributed to that?
2: Oh, there was a number of things. You know, people were burnt out. People wanted to do different things. There was also a controversial drug bust that went down that basically caused Greg to have to. Uh, he was offered immunity to testify after this guy that was actually uh, involved in the logistics of the band. Mm. Uh, you know, headlines were terrible and and it was ripping us all apart. It was a tough time, a sad time. Uh, it, it somewhat ostracized Greg because a lot of people feel like he turned in his friend. But in, in truth, uh, he was offered the immunity that if you do not testify, you're locked up in jail for as long as the judge wants you to be. So. Right. Um, it was a tough choice for him, but uh, I think he made the right decision. He had to get out there and tell the truth, you know. Yeah, yeah. But that caused the breakup of the band, and uh, without going too deep, as you know, uh, that was the beginning of the band C-Level, and that was uh, three of us out of the almonds, uh, J-Mo G-Mo. on drums. Yeah. And and Lamar Williams, who came in after Barry Oakley died to to play bass. So we started C-Level. I got a fourth member, uh, my old pal Jimmy Knowles, who had played with me, with Dr. John and with Alex Taylor. And uh, we investigated some other record companies, but Capricorn really wanted us and it was home for us. So uh, we did several records on the Capricorn label. But we had a good run of it. I think we did six records over a five-year period. And, you know, I think it was 1980 that we finally called it quits. But uh, we had a good run of it. We were selling 250, 300,000 records per. So uh, we were happy with that mm-hmm. and, and did some great tours, played some beautiful theaters, had a, had a lot of fun.
4: In first we live, still soft from birth, like an invisible sheet surrounds us.
0: on the music for a bit and ask you about your love of nature and conservation and forestry.
2: How did all that start? All my wife's fault, Don. All my wife's I'm fault. Blaming the wife, huh? Okay. Yeah, it's her fault. Now, Rose Lane's family have been connected to the land for generations uh, as farmers, uh, tending cattle and livestock, um, row cropping. And there was a component of, uh, of forestry involved as well. So, you know, when we first started dating and got serious and and decided to get married, you know, she said, come meet the family. And she had really not told me anything about them. So here I am the long-haired hippie boy going in to meet the daughter's father, who was a farmer. And I'm nervous as I can be, but they put me at ease immediately. They were just so nice to me, so gracious and So we got married and then as we would come out and spend time with the family on weekends or holidays or whatever it might be, uh, this ethic of stewardship was rubbing off on me. You know, I, I started realizing the deep passion and the deep respect that this family had for the land and the way that they went about working the land. And so then in 1981, and I guess we'd been married about seven or eight years at that point, Her grandmother passed away and left her a nice parcel of land, about a thousand acres Mm -hmm. and the house that uh, that she lived in. And so all of a sudden we wake up one day that this is now our responsibility. We knew it was family land. We knew we certainly didn't want to sell it, but we weren't quite sure what we were going to do with it. So I went on this journey of looking into row cropping, looking, looked at everything, pecan trees, peach trees, uh, anything that was kind of indigenous for Georgia. Nursery stock Um, I realized pretty quickly that row cropping cattle farming that kind of thing was going to take a lot of day to day and I wanted to pursue my musical career and I kept coming back to forestry and then Don I thought you know there's a personal connection here where does that thing that's given me so much joy and a great career come from well it comes from the resource of wood doesn't it like most musical instruments do And I thought, well, maybe this could be a way of giving back if I study forestry and learn how to properly manage forest land. And you think about all the other things that come from the forest, materials to build our homes, schools, churches, and offices, and materials to make books and magazines and newspaper and packaging products. You know, when we get those boxes from Amazon and other sources, uh, those boxes are made, uh, cardboard made from trees, you know and uh, they provide home and shelter to all manner of wildlife. They clean our air, they clean our water, and they give us uh, a certain peace of mind when we're walking in a nice park or amongst a a national forest or a forest somewhere in your state. So I began to have my own passion for this resource and I began to study it Uh, eventually when I was traveling with the fabulous Thunderbirds for a year or so i entered a correspondence course on forestry which was very very helpful and then we began to actively manage and from there it became not just uh, working the land but activism and uh, you know i've written now three books that are somewhat related to forestry and do a lot of public speaking on behalf of of the concept of forestry and sustainable management practices so sure. it, it's been a wonderful journey
0: it must kill you every time you hear someone say global warming is a hoax. Uh,
2: yeah, it does. Yeah, I know. It does. Yeah, we, uh, the naysayers uh, just don't get it, I'm no, afraid. But, no, no. yeah, I think we have a, a president and an administration now that does get it. Thank heaven. The last mm-hmm. four years have been tragic in terms of environmental issues. Sure. And I think we're back on the track now. Uh, we got a long way to go, but at least we're restarting the engine now
0: in your documentary you mentioned that 1981 work was a little dry at that time uh,
2: <laughs> is that putting it mildly uh, yeah it, it, it's here's the true story so sea level had broken up i had a little trio and we were playing small clubs in the region of the south not making much money not really doing anything all that creative and At the same time, Rose Lane had inherited the property, and I had this interest of uh, land use. And I came home one day kind of frustrated with what was going on, and uh, Rose Lane's always been a good listener, so I kind of vented a little bit and said, honey, you know, I'm never gonna quit music, but uh, phone's not ringing, I'm not getting sessions, uh, this club thing is not going anywhere, I'm just frustrated with it. And uh I'm very interested in the possibility of working this land and trying to learn more about it and so she listened very patiently at the end of all that she said well that's interesting chuck but guess what the rolling stones called you today wow. and my first reaction was listen I don't need a joke right now I'm serious you know <laughs> right. and she and she's like well I'm serious too uh, because here's the phone number on this piece of paper why don't you just go right over there to that telephone and call it and see what happens and, and it was I Bill did. Graham, wasn't it? It was Bill Graham because he, uh, of course, he loved the Allman Brothers Band. And we became very good friends. He was also very helpful to promote Sea level during those years. And uh, he uh, had become the tour director for the Rolling Stones. Right. And they wanted to try some fresh blood. And uh, my name came up through Bill. And so, you know, this, this happened so quickly. I, uh, when I got somebody on the phone, I said, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm Chuck Lavelle, and I understand some people might be looking for me. Uh, well, a few hours later, Ian Stewart, who many of your listeners will know, was a very important figure with the Rolling Stones, uh, sadly gone now. Yeah. But anyways, Stu called me and uh, i said well gosh i'm flabbergasted man you know this was like a thursday and i said i got a little club gig friday and saturday can i come up sunday or monday and he said we'd really like to have you there tomorrow so boom that was it what could you say <laughs> right. I, I called the club they were very understanding and within uh, another 36 hours i was on a plane
0: what was that meeting like who was there was it obviously Ian stewart must have been there
2: Stu was the guy that picked me up from the airport and right from the get-go he was very supportive uh he had of course was familiar with the allman brothers band as were the other guys um and he liked the fact that i was from the south you know he, i think all uh well i won't say all but a lot of uh english musicians do have a fascination with the south sure and that's and that's a good thing Sure um he picked me up we had a good chat on the way i get to the compound where the rehearsals taking place um the first thing i see when i get out of the car is jagger he's uh jogging with the security crew i had actually met charlie years before when the almonds went to england for the first time and there was this party that i went to and charlie was there and we had a brief meeting i don't think he even remembers it now but i remember it and uh then the next person I met was Bill Wyman. He was one of the first guys I knew that bought a computer, the early Mac Macintosh computer. He was sitting there behind the computer and typing. And and then later that afternoon, I met uh, Keith and Ronnie. They were playing pool in a side room there. And you know, I, I was a little nervous, but before I went for the flight, even I said, you know what, Chuck, you you used to play this stuff in your first band, and so go up there and have fun we all put our pants on the same way uh enjoy yourself whatever happens is going to be okay and it was supposed to be a one-day audition. They kept me there for three days. I felt great about it. I thought I had the gig, but when I got back home, there was no word, no word, no word. Finally, after a week or 10 days, uh, Stu called me and he said, well, listen, man, You know everybody loves you, uh, but they're going to keep Ian McClagan on this tour. Of course, Mac had uh, played w- with the faces right. with Ronnie Wood, and so there was some politics there, obviously. Uh, and I, I was disappointed, but I understood and I enjoyed the experience. And then on that U.S. tour in 81, they came to Atlanta and did an unannounced show at the Fox Theater. And Stu called me and said, do you want to come up and have a bash? I said, yeah, I think I'd love to do that. So uh, they had me sit in in the middle of the set. And that's where I first met Ian McClagan. And he was extremely nice to me and gave me some flattering compliments. and. Of course i love his playing as well so we became friends but at the end of that tour they took a break and uh they designed a european tour and mac had made some commitments to bonnie Raitt, so they called me and they said listen if if, if you want it your own so that was it man had the seat ever since
0: to your knowledge were there any other players being auditioned that we would know
2: uh there was uh oh man i'm 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 uh, blanking on the name he was a a jazz kind of a jazzer from new york david sanchez i think it was Mm -hmm. and there might have been others that came in that i didn't know about yeah um, yeah yeah. listen it was such a good time so fun as i said of course i was disappointed not to get the u.s tour but uh, when Stu called me back and said we're going to europe and we want you that was a good day
0: oh i bet it was in fact uh last night i was re-watching the leeds gig with a round hay park. that was in 82. Mm-hmm. i'm watching you thinking what must be going through his head see if any <laughs> nerves are showing but no, you're a professional but still man it's the stones what was going through your
2: mind yeah well it it was uh when i finally got the word that i had the gig of course i was elated uh but th- immediately and this the same thought process that i had when i was asked to join the allman brothers what can I do to do a good job? You know, how can I contribute to this band musically so that hopefully it makes it a little bit better. And Stu was wonderful to me. He, Stu was such a a peculiar person. You know, Stu would say, uh, don't like slow songs. They're boring. (laughs) And, and he would say, uh, I don't like minor chords. It sounds Chinese. And so, So if it was a ballad or if it had minor chords, I would get to play the piano and uh but if it was the and stuff, he played piano and I'd play the Hammond B three.
0: Yeah, it seemed like you were doing a lot of Wurlitzer.
2: or, or some Wurlitzer, yeah. Songs like yeah. yeah. songs like Miss You, you know, which yep. is whirly heavy. People don't so realize that, Ian Stewart was a founding member of the Rolling Stones. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I, I listened to an interview recently, a very early interview with Stu. And the way he put it was uh, that Brian Jones was actually the founder of the band. He had put an ad in the paper looking for blues musicians and Stu was one of the first that came in. And then of course, later the other guys followed suit, but uh, he was there in the very, very beginning. And then the history is that Andrew Lug Oldham, who was an early manager of the band, decided that he didn't quite look the part and that six was too many. And he felt like, you know, five was just right. So they politely booted him out of the band. And rather than running away, he said, well, okay, I get it. I'll stay on and I will I can still play occasionally and I can uh, do lo- logistics and, and that sort of thing. So he became a confidant. You
0: joined the band at a precarious time in their career. There was no tour to support Undercover in 83, and definitely no tour for Dirty Work.
2: Well, Mick wanted to do a solo record, uh, which made Keith very, very upset. Keith wanted the band to tour. Mick didn't want a tour, and he actually wound up at some point during that time doing that tour of, I think it was Australia and Japan. Uh, that further ostracized Keith and upset him. Uh, yeah there was tension, but you know we managed to make two records uh I think they 're somewhat overlooked. They may not be the best records the band ever made, but you know there's there 's some material on there. Was sometimes tough in the studio with tension going on and there was also times when it would be mixed day or it would be keith's day yeah but you know listen i just love the music and and i love the band and you know none of us wanted to see the thing break up yeah. even with the strong tensions that were ex- existing so they you know they managed to make their way through that difficult time and stay together and then of course uh, when steel wheels came around in 89 things changed dramatically for the better
0: oh sure but at that time i remember reading stones are broken up they're not going to play together you know it was very much the attitude did you feel like oh man nice break but it's going to be short-lived
2: i never thought it would fall apart that badly i really didn't uh, even with those tensions you know families have siblings that get into arguments and you know most of the time i think they work it out you know there are times when it doesn't work out but uh that was my feeling i i I saw it going down but you know i think the prevailing attitude was the whole is greater than the sum of its parts
0: absolutely speaking about another band who had a similar situation the beatles in 1991 i think it was december you did 12 dates in japan backing George harrison I don't even know where to start. Just tell me everything. Just
2: <laughs> tell me everything. Well, let's start with this. Uh, we all had our favorite Beetle, and mine was George. Always was. Yeah. And uh, I just loved his, you know, the quietness of the guy. I, I love the understated personality, uh, great sense of humor, incredible talent. You know, the way it came about was sad because I had been asked to do the twenty-four nights gig with Eric Clapton and that was amazing mm-hmm. and at the end of that eric was going to take a year off and be with his son connor and we all know what happened uh, yeah. connor had this tragic fall out of a high rise in new york city and was killed and so the decision was well eric doesn't need to be taking a year off he needs to work and get his mind back on music and functionality and uh so i was called in he said the, he had thrown the gauntlet down to george you know in a way that, Hey man, you know, you only make a record every five years or so, and you yeah. don't get in the trenches like the rest of us do. And, yeah. you know, and, and G- George's response was, but I don't have a band. <laughs> and Eric said, well, I got a band and you can have it and you're have me. So how could you say no to that, <laughs> uh, who was in that that was Nathan East, Steve Ferroni Steve Ferrone on drums, yep. Nathan East on bass, Andy Fairweather Low on that's guitar, right. yeah, as well as Eric, of course, yeah. uh, myself, and Greg Philanganes was uh, also playing keyboards.
0: A hell of a band!
2: And, oh yeah, man! Ray Cooper and, and on oh, that's right, yeah, yep, and, and also uh, Tessa Niles and Katie Kassoon on vocals, and and that was just a brilliant outfit. I was so proud to be a part of it, and and amazed that that I had that opportunity, but. George, man, was so humble, you know, at at the end of a gig, he'd he'd ring you up on the phone, uh, got a bit of food here, would you like to come up? You know, George was so accommodating and so gracious and just endearing to everybody in the band. Easy to work with? Very, very easy to work with. Uh, I think he seemed very happy with what everyone was bringing to the table in terms of uh, the musicianship. Uh, we tried to be really true to those recordings, and it was a wide variety of stuff, everything from some of the Beatles' songs to uh, uh, his songs off of All Things Must Pass and, and other records that he did. Uh, hey, we could have done a six-hour show. Oh, easy, God, yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, and he must have been nervous because the 74 tour was such a disaster, and yet in 91, he was in good voice, great playing.
2: Exactly. And you know, Don, we all begged him, man, you got to take this to America. I mean, they would just go crazy. They would eat this up. It would be such a great tour. And if even if Eric did, wants to take time off and, and didn't want to be involved, the rest of us would love to do it. And we just think it would be so great. And he just didn't didn't care for it. Um, I think a lot of those bad memories from the '74 mm. tour. You know, there were stories about that he would go out into the auditorium at the end of uh, a night and see all the trash and garbage and beer bottles and, and liquor bottles, and you know, he thought, "What am I doing? Uh, you know, yeah. is, is this the right thing for me to be doing as a human being?" Uh, but you're right. By '91, he had loosened up and uh, thought thought of the music. And, of course, Japan, the folks are so uh, wonderful over there. And, they, you know, they were really happy to, uh, to have George do a tour over there. And the, the attendance was amazing. The reception was amazing.
0: Well, I remember reading a big article in Rolling Stone around that time saying that George was not going to come over because he felt that the audience, well, in Japan, they don't hoot and holler and carry on like Western audiences do. And he took that as kind of a, a lukewarm response. Is there
2: any truth to that? Well, I think there may be. Uh, I felt that way the first time that uh, the Stones went. You know, it's just a different culture, and they look at things very differently. They're very organized. You know, when they come into the venue, they they come in sections. Uh, nobody goes to their section until it's their time to do so you know, they don't want to overreact, they don't like to overreact, they don't like that, you know, at least at the time they didn't. In subsequent years when I've gone back with the Stones, uh, that's changed considerably, you know, they've they've loosened up a lot. But uh, at that particular time period, uh, that was the case. I think it probably confused George a little bit, but I'm sure at the end of the day, he understood that it was more of a cultural thing.
4: Escaping from this soup. Oh, baby. I-
0: about the stones that i didn't realize until you guys started putting out all these different shows from around the world that depending where you are around the world the audience is going to be different in terms of audience reaction you know what happens in the united states isn't going to happen in india and then you go down to like rio de janeiro and brazil and they're doing like you know soccer chants after every song
2: Well, for me personally, it's wonderful to go to South America, Buenos Aires and other parts of of South America where they just absolutely go crazy and the beautiful, healthy people and and the guys are doing the take the shirts off and twirl them around in the air. Yeah, yeah. and there's these waves of jumping and sort of undulating out in the audience. I mean, it's again, for me personally, uh, it's about the music. You know, we want to deliver. Now, I will say this, uh, Mick, and as you may know, I, I have something to do with the set lists, and I have for quite some time now. And we do some research. Uh, he'll always have record company and, and others uh, that are connected do a little bit of research. You know, what are the most played songs? What's the most played? album uh, in this country or that country and, and we cater to that a little bit so we do give it some thought uh but you know once the curtain goes up and you're out on stage whatever you're playing play it right and have fun
5: high key modes chuck a love Al. Byram, Queen, and Mouthis. She tried to take me upstairs for the ride She had to keep me ride right across her shoulders.
2: To submit a long list of songs to the places that we played in China mm-hmm. and it was so funny because all right songs like Beast of Burden for instance that was one that was banned they really? didn't want to hear that yeah yeah uh, i think the title alone they felt that it was something political you know which of course has nothing to do with that right um and then there were you know songs that may have had swear words in them that they next yeah. but what was interesting is that you know we submitted this huge list something like 75 songs you know we knew we we're not going to play that many but we wanted to see what they were going to do so they scratched out some that we figured that they would and then we uh revised it and sent it back along with some songs that were in that first list that they accepted. So you know, <laughs> yeah, you never know.
0: I know. You mentioned that you're kind of their official, unofficial musical director. What does
2: that entail on a nightly basis? It started during the Steel Wheels rehearsals. When we did that 82 tour prior to that, seven years prior, the set list was exactly the same every night. And I know that they realized it, but I made a big push to say, look, You've got such an incredible body of work, you know, let, let's celebrate that and let's rehearse a whole lot of songs that we can swap things in and out. And uh, everybody kind of felt that way. So we had a very extensive rehearsal period and I began to take copious notes uh, about the songs and the chord charts. Uh, did we have horn parts in it? If we did, what were the horn parts? Uh, what about background vocals? Did we change the arrangement for any reason uh so i would just make all these notes and thankfully uh, the technician for me at the time said you know what these these are pretty cool I, i'm going to go out and get us a book with the uh, plastic sheeting and every time you make one of these charts or whatever make notes uh, i'll put it in there and so he started alphabetizing everything and this process has gone up to the present time And so consequently, I've got these two kind of encyclopedic books of notes and chord charts and of arrangements. And so uh, they started looking to me, well, Chuck knows what the middle eight is, you know, Chuck knows where the solo goes. What, you know, did we do a double chorus there, Chuck? You know, so I began to uh, be the go-to guy and I love doing that. And then it translated to sometimes on the stage, especially with Charlie because Charlie of course he knows the songs but he's playing drums to the songs he he's not as keenly aware of all the chord changes and you know all of that uh nor does he really need to because he's Charlie Watts okay right. but uh so he'll ask me sometimes oh man I can't remember where that part in that song comes would you give me a signal you know and I'm happy to do that you know I'll give him a nod I'll put mm. my hand up Uh, I count off a lot of the songs, you know, because I have a pretty good handle on the tempos and where they need to be. And uh, sometimes, you know, Mick is out there very busy. He's working the crowd. He's trying to engage them. Sometimes he's 75 feet away, you know, with these big stages and ramps. And so there's times when he needs to look at me and, you know, is this the chorus? Is this a verse? Right. Is it it time for the guitar solo? And I can give hand signals and, um, again, little nods and winks to help people out. And, you know, I I enjoy doing that.
0: You know, I've, I've seen the Stones with you about nine times now. I always get that section where I get a good bird's eye view of what you're
2: doing. And I've seen you out there, man. You
0: can tell you're working just as hard as Mick. Just in a All different right.
2: way. Well, I appreciate that, man. I, I as I said, I really enjoy the role. Uh You know let's face it the stones are not the kind of band where a keyboard player is going to get a lot of solo room um it's a guitar band and i'm often reminded that by keith richards okay (laughs) yeah right right. but but, uh but nevertheless having that type of role uh kind of helps me to feel like i am contributing you know if i don't get to do long solos and and that that doesn't really bother me i I get especially the melodic stuff i get to shine and I uh, try to celebrate the other great keyboard players that have played with the Stones, Nicky Hopkins, of course, and hmm. Billy Preston, and uh, Jack Nietzsche, and, and Ian McLagan, and Ian Stewart, you know. So I try to tip my hat to those guys when I'm playing. I'm not going to play it exactly like they do, of course, but I, I don't want to deviate so far that I take it to some other place it doesn't need to be. Uh, those are great players, and they contributed so much uh, to to the records and to the tours.
0: What's the worst gig that you can think of since you've been with the Stones?
2: Well, uh, let's see. I think it was Philadelphia. I can't remember the tour, Don, but it was the first show. And we're, I think, and in, in, uh, I can't remember the song. It, it might have been Shattered. It, I, I might be wrong about that. But anyway, uh, the entire power goes off. Boom. Done. You know, yeah. no PA, no. And all you could hear was Charlie Watts playing. <laughs> And you know, what do you do? I mean, you you can't communicate to the audience because the mics don't work and everything's off and it's just a very awkward situation. Another thing that I recall, and I, again, I'm I'm not sure I can state the exact tour, Mm. but, uh, I think it was Virginia or Virginia beach or somewhere in that region, we had a bomb scare. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, and we had to stop, you know, the, uh, Michael Cole, who was the promoter at the time is waving his arms over on the side, you know, jumping up and down and, you know, we're all like, what the hell is Michael. doing?" <laughs> and, you know, he would, but he was very serious and very intense. So we stopped and he said, you got to get off the stage. You got to get off the stage right now. And, uh, then made a quick announcement and, you know, here they're, they're hustling us out. But then there's a, they tell the audience, there's a bomb scare has been called in and all the audience is still in the place right there in the front row. And I'm thinking, oh my God, those people are not happy, you <laughs> know, <laughs> but, uh, uh, it was very awkward, but, uh, and it took about an hour as I recall to everybody to, they abandoned the thing. They had the dog sniff everywhere. They looked under every seat. Maybe it took an hour and a half, and uh, we brought it back together, so we made it work. Uh, but those were some very awkward times.
0: How long till the power went back on the Philadelphia gig?
2: You know, I, it seemed like forever. Uh, it was probably 15 minutes i think it was before we had backup generators maybe yeah. that there was uh, somebody pulled a plug you know <laughs> or something went wrong with oh, the geez. with the power supply and we didn't have any backup and uh, so now i think these days the thing runs on a certain power that we know is re- reliable <laughs> sure.
0: Well, i gotta tell you i love the chuck lavelle with the frankfurt radio big band chuck gets big love that album Oh, i listening you, to you. it it's very cool gonna be doing any more with them what's on the agenda for 2021
2: well we're all waiting for covid right right, uh, right. i think it, every musician every artist uh you know some people are going into the studio the stones have done uh, you know i've done at least one session with them over the last couple of years i know they've done a lot of sessions without me in the room um i don't know if i'll get a chance to overdub on some of that or not but um uh, uh, you know those are the kinds of activities that people are doing there's the virtual gigs that go on you know you got the grammys coming up in virtual world mm-hmm. pretty soon and and you know i guess you have to do those things but it's absolutely not the same as no. being able to play in front of an audience and uh, see the whites of the eyes you know so I'm focusing on the land. I'm going to be working on the place. I'm certainly going to keep my chops up and play. I may go into the studio and do some things. I got an idea about doing a gospel record that would kind of, the purpose of it would be to show how the church has influenced rock and roll piano. You know, when you think of uh, Little Richard, you think of Jerry Lee Lewis and Fats Domino and all, all those early piano artists pretty much came from the church, you know?
0: Well, that's a great idea. Oh, I-
2: yeah. Well, thank you. And, uh, so those are the kind of exercises I'll be looking to do. And then, you know, will we be able to do any shows this year? I have no idea. It's too early to tell. Uh, I will say this and you'll appreciate this, Don, uh, 2022 is the 60th anniversary of the Rolling Stones.
0: Oh, how did that happen? Six. My God. Is it, and
2: and you'll you'll love this. Uh, Keith was doing an interview recently with someone because he was promoting a, a re-release of a box set of uh, a live show that he did with the Winos. Mm-hmm. And the guy asked him, Well, you know, I love this box set. It's great, great. Uh, but tell me about the Stones. I note that uh, 2022 is the 60th anniversary. Can you tell me if you have any plans? And Keith said. Yes, we do have a plan. The plan is for all of us to be alive in 22. (laughs) Let's start with that and see where we go after. So in the meantime, and thank you for mentioning the documentary, The Tree Man. uh, I've certainly done a lot of media and promotion for that. Uh, It's gotten a great reaction. I'm very, very pleased with the way it turned out. My filmmaker, Alan Forrest, he just did a superb job in taking all this raw footage and stitching it together to make a cohesive story out of it sure and, and um you also have a so tv
0: show i understand
2: i do yes uh america's forests and uh we've had seven episodes shot in various states across the country we actually we just got funded uh, completely funded to do an episode in arkansas so we'll be going there in april uh very excited to do that
0: where can people uh, see that if they want to check it
2: out well, first of all, it runs on PBS, but not on any regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's like whatever PBS stations choose to run it, run it. And right. so you have you have to check with the local listings. However, anyone can stream those episodes on www.americasforestwithchucklavelle.com.
0: Well, I hope everybody checks it out. Chuck, thank you. Truly appreciate it. And I'm just going to tell you, Greatest show I ever saw was when you guys did No Security, 1999. I think there was something that happened where you had to cancel some shows in London. It was quickly put together mini tour, and it was the greatest show I've ever seen in my life of any band, any time. <laughs> bon, none. I mean, you guys are always great, but this particular one, ooh, it was um, just, it was just rock and roll, nonstop for ninety minutes, no filler, uh, all killer.
2: <laughs> I, I like that, no filler, all killer. Oh, man. Well, listen, we've had so many incredible experiences. On the last tour, I don't know who calculated this, but somebody said, have you ever figured out how many shows you've done with the Rolling Stones? I said, well, I know it's got to be up there. And they did the research and it turned out to be well over a thousand. And uh, it's crazy to think about that.
0: Here's to a thousand more.
2: Amen, my brother. Amen.
0: of the Keys, Chuck Lavelle, the Rolling Stones right there, live in Germany from their 1998 Bridges to Babylon tour. And I want to thank Chuck Lavelle for being so gracious and generous with his time. We only scratched the surface of his 50-year career, so I encourage everyone out there, check out the documentary, Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man. And if you want to see his PBS series, just visit www.americasforestwithchucklavelle.com. All typed out as one word, no spaces or commas, please. And if you like what you're hearing on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast week after week, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are available. Also, check us out online at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com on Facebook and Instagram at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. All typed out as one word, no spaces or commas, please. I'm trying to get that to be like my catchphrase. And until next time, in the immortal words of John Lennon, can't get head in the head shop.